You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. Thank you for joining us here on the Chris Spangle Show. My name is Chris Spangle, and I am very excited about today's show, and I think you will be as well once you learn more about Dr. Ken Bassan, who has been, um, you know, right in the middle of so many great developments of the Libertarian movement and the Libertarian Party over the year. Someone that I met when I was executive director of the Libertarian Party of Indiana from 2008 to 2012. And then when I served as the Advocates for Self-Government marketing guy in 2013, got to know him a little bit better there. And I find as I uh, talk to folks, as the Libertarian Party faces, uh, faces, looks towards its 50th anniversary next year, uh, I wanted to bring you uh, Dr. Bassan's story so you can hear what it was like in the beginning and the, through the development and hear his thoughts on where we're at now. And I thank you so much for joining me, Ken. I appreciate you taking the time. Well, it's my pleasure to be with you again, Chris. Um, it's an interesting time in which we live. And the idea of giving an interview uh, on your show uh, brought back a lot of good memories and thoughts about reflecting on what we see now and putting it into perspective. My story might uh, might help with that. Yeah, let's start at the beginning. I mean, when did you first hear the word libertarian or when did you kind of uh, awaken to these ideas that have driven so much of your activism over the last years, few years, decades? Well, I um, I was raised in a household that was a conservative and as I went off to college as a 17-year-old, um, the 26th Amendment to the Constitution had just been passed, so 18-year-olds would be able to vote, and I was going to turn 18 uh, two weeks before the election in 1972. So I registered to vote down in uh, Bloomington, Indiana, and um, voted for my first time for Richard Nixon, who won 49 states in a landslide, almost everyone in the country, 60%, I believe, of the popular vote went to this guy. Well, that didn't turn out really well, and I kind of gave up on politics for the next uh, eight years. I was not impressed with the selection I had made. But I, um, I went to medical school, and over the, the cadaver, four of us shared a cadaver and did... Uh, um, some cutting every day. You're a medical doctor, cad- by the way. <laughs> yeah, yes. <laughs> Clarify. One of my cadaver mates uh, said, you know, from what you're talking about, and she had gone to Hillsdale College, by the way. Okay. Yeah. A great school. She said, I think you might enjoy reading Ayn Rand, um, Atlas Shrugged. So I took her, took her up on it. And that was the beginning for me of my path towards becoming a libertarian. I don't think I had heard the word yet. However, um, I did enjoy Atlas Shrugged, and I did become more attuned to the, the reasons that socialism fails and the economics uh, that, that allows mankind to progress forward. And then uh, in 1980, uh, I was watching TV, and I saw Ed Clark come on with a 15-minute spot and he was describing exactly what I believed in. He was running for president on the Libertarian Party ticket in 1980. And I said, oh, my God, there's two of us. <laughs> you and, know, I hear, uh, I hear that. And, and maybe you can talk a little bit about Ed Clark. And that was a, an incredibly successful 
campaign and there was a reason that they had TV spots in 1980. I mean, who was Ed Clark and why was that significant? Can you talk a little bit about that campaign and then your experiences with it? Yeah, Ed was uh, an attorney, I believe, uh, in California, and his running mate was David Koch. And at that time, there was no, and, and today there's still no restriction on how much personal funding you can give to your own ticket. And the Koch money helped Ed Clark get on all 50 state ballots for the Libertarian Party for the first time. And they were also able to afford to buy TV spots, five-minute spots, and I think some 15-minute spots on all the major networks, which allowed people like me, who had strong feelings that we did better if individuals made choices for themselves instead of having our choices made for us by politicians, the chance to see this was a coherent philosophy and when I heard him speak uh, at that time, I didn't know who he was. I just knew that there were at least one other person in this world who felt very strongly. He was very uh, motivated to explain to Americans um, the values and the benefits of rejecting government making decisions for us in every possible place and letting individuals, right or wrong, choose for themselves as long as it doesn't hurt others. And so... Oh, I uh, I voted for Ed Clark and never thought much more about politics again for another eight years hmm. or almost. Um, but as a medical doctor, I went to the Indiana Medical Association annual meeting in uh, 1984 and happened to see someone else there who was wearing a name badge that said her name and said uh, Libertarian for Congress. So I said, you know, I voted for a Libertarian once, feeling like now there was a third person. <laughs> It turned out to be Barbara Borland, who was our state chair of the Libertarian Party of Indiana. And from there on, I got uh, drawn in tighter and tighter to meeting great and wonderful people in the Libertarian movement. Can I ask, like, you know, oh, I met a third person. I mean, was it just that lonely? Like, I imagine without the Internet, there wasn't even a way to look up the term or the party. I mean what kind of research would you have been able to do? Or did, was it really just like, wow, I only know about this one guy that ran for president that believes like I do? Uh, it was really quite lonely. And you could do the research and you could get on mailing lists if you were interested enough to do that. Um, having voted once in 1980 for a libertarian candidate in the privacy of my own voting booth, there was no one reaching out to me as an individual uh, however, Barbara Borland did say, I will invite you, and it was probably by email at that time, to attend the uh, the next year's convention of the Libertarian Party of Indiana. I think you'll enjoy it. And I got there, and there were like 50 of us now <laughs> that existed. And I was just awestruck to be in a room with so many people who appreciated and valued what I now strongly appreciate and value even more. You've been to a lot of conventions and having worked at a lot of conventions, that experience of showing up to a first convention or a first social event at a libertarian event, I have found, and I'm sure you've seen it a lot more than I have, is revelatory for a lot of people because they go, wow, I don't feel weird anymore. Yeah, there there have been a lot of changes that allow libertarians to stop feeling weird anymore when I... <laughs> Went to my first national LPIN convention. My God, there were hundreds of us in the room then. 
Um, one of the attendees that was not there was sitting in jail because he refused to register for the draft. Mm. And um, we were laughed at because we didn't believe we could have a successful military without a draft. We were laughed at because we questioned whether making marijuana illegal was doing more harm than good. Almost everything that people would have pointed to the libertarians and said, you're so silly, those things will never change, have changed. Hmm. (laughs) It's uh, been quite a transition just within my brief time with the movement, and uh, that gives me great hope. That is Um, something that I think is kind of lost is there's a lot of hopelessness right now for whatever reason in the libertarian movement. And yet so many of our ideas, I would, I would dare to say that at this point, interventionism is on the ropes ready for a knockout blow. Uh, you know, and I never would have thought that was possible. I mean, marijuana legalization, I mean, 2008, if you were a libertarian party candidate talking about pot, it was just like, you were the, you were the strangest person, even in the party. Uh, you know, so what are some other things that you've seen that ought to give a new libertarian hope that feels sort of hopeless about the prospects of liberty? Well, I think the most optimistic note is reality wins out. In other words, the people who call for socialism, to the extent they achieve it, they become destitute and socialism socialism always collapses on on its own. And the fact that uh, free market ideas... And limited government ideas that the founders of our country gave us with the republic that's a constitution we have now allowed mankind to advance faster and more people to get out of poverty, uh, more good things that we all want to see happen were achieved. And that's because it's a very successful way to advance mankind, and it will prevail. It's going to be a struggle at times. And political times are some of the biggest struggles. But um, this isn't a new problem. I, In preparing to talk to you today, I pulled up and actually came across it on another uh, email list I have. Uh, George Orwell, 15 years before he wrote 1984, wrote a book in which he had this one paragraph that comes to mind in our election time now. He said, political language... And with variations, this is true of all political parties, from conservatives to anarchists, is designed to make lies sound truthful and murder respectable, and to give an appearance of solidity to pure wind. So here here back in 1946, George Orwell is warning us that if you're listening to what a politician is saying, you should understand what political language is. And so don't hang your hat on politics Live your life, be an example, educate yourself, but above all, be aware that that's what political language is. I think a healthy dose of skepticism is within all Americans, and that's a good thing. So at that 1984 convention, you had the chance to meet Marshall Fritz, who I think is on the Mount Rushmore of libertarianism the modern libertarian movement, and very few people understand uh, who he is or what he did. And one of my missions through this podcast is to make sure that his memory lives on. Can you talk about the first time you saw Marshall Fritz? Who is he? And and just some reflections on him uh, in those early years. 
Sure. Um, in 1984, I went to the LPIN convention and became a delegate to the 1985 National Convention, and that's where I first met Marshall. I had to first sit through some bylaws debates, and after listening to an hour of libertarians protesting language with colons or semicolons, <laughs> I wandered away to a breakout session. And this breakout session was being led by Marshall Fritz. And he had a message that really appealed to me. I hadn't been around libertarians that long, but you don't have to be around libertarians too long to have run into some of the communication problems they <laughs> tend, we tend to have. Um, Marshall was pointing out, uh, we're not doing it right. When someone has an idea that's different than the libertarians' idea, it's rarely successful to say, well, you're stupid. You should believe what I believe. Not a good technique. And Marshall was forming an organization which, after three name changes, became the Advocates for Self-Government, believed in looking at communication approaches that would be more successful in sharing this beautiful message libertarians should have to share in a way that was going to be successful because it wasn't confrontational. And um, he was intent on forming an organization that would develop the tools which could be placed in the hands of other libertarians to help allow them to communicate better and therefore help our, our mission succeed in spreading the ideas of libertarianism. One of those is the world's smallest political quiz. Can you talk about the importance of the Nolan chart? It feels like we've kind of fallen back <clears throat> in both society and lived in the libertarian movement into left versus right. And the Nolan chart, I mean, that, and that's a real, relatively new development. I think there's just so many new libertarians that they view it of, well, you're a left libertarian, a right libertarian. But, you know, back in our day, uh, the Nolan chart in the world's smallest political quiz was how we viewed libertarians and where they kind of fit in development. And talk about this tremendous tool that really needs a refresh and a restart. It was one of the first tools of the Advocates for Government. When 1985, we were founding the organization, the Nolan chart existed, but the world's smallest political quiz did not. David Nolan, one of the founders of the Libertarian Party in 1972, had put on an axis, uh, x-axis and y-axis, the degree of economic freedom versus the degree of personal freedoms. And just it was an interesting graph. It didn't have any way to peg yourself as to where on each scale you were. And Marshall had the idea if, if we could come up with five simple questions that asked, asked people to place, give their opinion on where they stood on an economic issue, and five questions that asked people where they stood on personal freedoms, that they would be able to place a dot on that chart and see where they agreed with others and if you rotate that left, right, or that axis that's got an X, Y axis, 45 degrees, you can then draw a left, right line and an up and down line. And people could finally understand that you didn't have to be left or right. You might be somewhere in the middle, but not everybody in the middle was in the same middle. That if you were higher up between this, because perhaps you gave believed 80% of the decisions you made about your economic life should be made by you, not by politicians, and 80% of the decisions you made about your personal life, who you slept with, what you did with your own body, by golly, you were in the middle between left and right, but you were way 
above that left-right line. And that Nolan chart converted into the world's possible political is available to everybody. It's been, oh, it was 20 million visitors five, six years ago. It's probably more than that now by double. But go to world's smallest political quiz and see for yourself. Take the answer the 10 questions in the the privacy of your own mind. It just You'll recognize a bit more about what libertarians believe in. And you might be surprised to find yourself that you might just uh, feel at home with libertarians. For me, what that that chart does is it shows if when, when libertarians are talking about economic issues and saying things like, you know, if you take people's income away from them and taxes sufficiently enough to pay for everything everybody wants, we have a worse world. We, you know, individuals should make their own decisions about their economic choices. Well, we sound like conservatives. And then if you talk about personal, uh, personal freedoms, and say, well, who do you think should decide what you should do with your own body? Do you think it should be the politicians, or do you think you should choose for yourself? Oh, my goodness. Well, libertarians believe individual choice beats the political choice makers overwhelmingly. Then we sound all of a sudden like we're from the left, like we're liberals. But the reality is conservatives only give rise to freedom and individual choice in one venue, and liberals only give the rise and individual choice in another venue. You have to believe in individual choice supremacy over politicians in both areas to be a libertarian. And a lot of people are. They just haven't encountered it before. Yeah, absolutely. And I have heard, um, and I don't know if this is apocryphal, but when I worked for the Advocates, Someone told me that to start the organization or to start the world's smallest political quiz and operation politically homeless, which we can touch on here. Um, he traveled the country, drove around for like a year straight, had like these hangers. Marshall slept here to get this. Like he literally traveled around the country in his car, delivering the world's smallest political quiz to to local libertarians to get this thing going. I mean, now you'd like start a Facebook campaign, but that level of dedication to getting it going as a tool always impressed me. Is that a true story? Did that happen? It was, it it predated really the, um, the quiz, but Marshall was uh, dedicated to getting this new organization off the ground and he did, in fact, uh, make several trips uh, by car. In fact, I first met Jim Lark, who was the national chairman of the Libertarian Party when I was the national vice chair, when he was chauffeuring, or what Jim will say, schlepping Marshall around. <laughs> and uh, he handed him off at the Illinois line when I picked him up and brought him to Angola, Indiana, to give a talk to people in my community. And uh, I think we had 64 people turn out for this seminar that he was giving. It was, it was a canned presentation, but it was allowing people to get the idea of supporting the advocates and, and exposing libertarian ideas. And it was a success in my town. I was so thrilled about the whole concept of libertarian ideas that I, you know, I wanted Marshall to come and talk to my friends, too. And he did that all over the country. And it was quite a remarkable travel. And... Uh, the, the advocates came along slowly growing and uh, funding by most of the members who were enthusiastic like me. We got some major donors, and uh, it took a, a long time, but uh, from 1985 until now, they've done a good job and done a 
a lot of wonderful things. Yeah. If you want to hear that presentation or one of them or a variation of it, check out. Uh, I, and I've, when I, um, when Brett Bittner left the organization, he gave you, you, you'd put out a lot of tapes and a lot of training tapes and I have access to all of the tapes. And so what I've been doing by asking for forgiveness, if uh, the organization finds out, which doesn't particularly do a lot of the training stuff that they did, um, I'm putting them in a podcast feed and it's in, it's uh, you search for upward libertarian activism and you can hear all these training tapes from the 80s and 90s and 2000s uh, that, that uh, I'm cleaning up. With, I bought some software to kind of help take the clicks and pops out to the best of uh, the ability that I have to clean some of this stuff up. But Marshall, I, you know, that presentation that you're talking about, it's also the first episode in our other podcast called Liberty Explained where you can hear that specific presentation, which I think is one of the best presentations of what a libertarian believes in 45 minutes. Thank goodness the Cato people through libertarianism.org posted the video of it. I just think Marshall was just a truly gifted messenger of libertarianism and was just such a force. I mean, what are some other ways that, you know, he influenced America, I mean, really, by by giving these tools, I mean, can you talk about the Operation Politically Homeless kit? I mean, that is probably where millions of people first ran into libertarian ideas and thought that they might be a libertarian. Sure. By by 1988, uh, the Advocates was better established. We had printed 50,000 copies of the world's smallest political quiz on postcard-sized papers that we went to the uh, same town, Atlanta, Georgia, where the Democratic National Presidential Nominating Convention was being held. And we held our annual meeting the same week so that after our meeting, we could go to the media, to the delegates, to the public, and using a martial technique, which is it's fun and it's free. I think you'd enjoy it. And handing them a card, people would usually, if you smiled when you said those words, say, okay, and take your card. Well, the card then had the world's smallest political quiz, which in a very non-threatening way allows them to see for themselves a little bit about our ideas. Well, we did this for several days and passed out thousands and thousands of cards. In fact, I remember by the third day, I would approach somebody going into the convention hall and they'd see in my hand the card and they'd pull theirs out of their pocket to say, <laughs> I already got one. A defensive move. <laughs> and uh, by the end of a long day, we were back in the park where we were meeting before we went back to Oglethorpe University where our dorm rooms were. And uh, somebody had one of the world's smallest political quiz blown up as a chart. And so we had that propped up and we we're sitting on the table because we wanted to rest. And we found out that people were coming up to us mm. saying, what's that all about? So we said, well, here, take the quiz and we'll show you where you are on that chart. And that's where the Operation Politically Homeless, which is a, a, a outreach in a, in a packet, you get a chart, you get quiz cards. And if you go to a, a gun show or a county fair or wherever people gather and you put up this poster, People want to know more about it. You don't have to be explaining anything. You just give them a chance to take the quiz. They get a dot on the chart that shows where they fall on the world's smallest political quiz. And then you give them a take-home copy. And they leave you thinking, that was an interesting experience. That guy was pretty neat. And nobody argued with me. And I've got my own ideas. No one tried to change them. 
but they've just encountered an idea they may never, ever have come across before, which is that Nolan chart with the quiz questions attached that started the process for them of thinking there's more to politics than left and right. And there's more things that I agree with libertarians than I disagree. And uh, that's one of about five tools that we developed that turned out to make a big difference in helping libertarians be better communicators of our ideas. Yeah, I mean, there were the organization wrote books and published books with Michael Cloud and Sharon Harris and Mary Ruart. These are uh, huge, huge influential people in the libertarian movement, especially in the 90s. Um, now, Marshall had a, a nice way of drawing in the best of the best. Um, yeah. I, I, I devoted more of my time to the advocates than I did to the Libertarian Party because it's, it felt like it was being more effective use of my time in the 80s. And then um, David Berglund, who had been our presidential candidate in 84, was a big part of the advocates and a, a trainer as well. Another tool, <clears throat> Marshall was really, really insisted we don't want to to make enemies. We want to be the people that are thought of as the good libertarians. <laughs> and uh, so a technique that he suggested we would use, if you took, took it in modern day times, is if you wanted someone to understand economics a little better, and they were insisting that uh, Biden's plan to give a $2,000 check to every American was a good idea, you wouldn't just tell them they're stupid and they should go take an economics course. You would say, you know, there might be something to that. I wonder what would happen if instead of 2000 we just gave everybody a check for a million dollars. <laughs> and then you shut up and you wait and see what they have to say and have them recognize for themselves the economic consequences. So right. you wouldn't have to argue with them. You ask a question and then you wait and let them answer it for themselves. And some people will decide, well, there must be a problem with that. And they'll figure out a little bit more skepticism themselves. Yeah, so let's talk about your time in the Libertarian Party. I mean, and maybe we begin in 1982 with the, the threshold being changed, because I think it's important for people to understand the fight for ballot access. I mean, it was remarkable that uh, Ed Clark was on the ballot in all 50 states, and it was really, really hard to do that until relatively recently. Um, and it still is. I mean, still an, an incredible expenditure for the Libertarian Party to get their presidential candidate on the ballot. Um, but you you are a member of the Libertarian Party. You've run for office. Let's start with at the beginning when in terms of your involvement in the Libertarian Party. Sure. Um, yeah, it's it, it's a purposeful step for the political parties that are the old two major parties to keep newcomers off the ballot makes their game a lot easier to play. So uh, back in 1980s, early 1980s, uh, Indiana's election law said that any party that wanted to be automatically placed on the ballot had to succeed in getting at least one half percent of the vote in the previous secretary of state race. And we did that in 1982, thanks to Ed Clark's bringing the Libertarian Party to the forefront of people's minds, libertarians in Indiana went out and petitioned to get our secretary of state candidate on the ballot in 82, and we passed that threshold. So then, of course, <clears throat> the Republican-led legislature convinced the Democrats that that's not a high enough threshold. We really should raise that to 2%, which really was way beyond most states' requirements for ballot access. And in fact, Supreme Court decisions had struck down that limit. But in Indiana, 2% became the new threshold. 
And at the next uh, election for Secretary of State, which was 1986, I was now involved with the Libertarian Party of Indiana. And it was famous because it was the son of Bai facing off against the son of Bowen. Otis Bowen, the Republican governor who was well-loved by Hoosiers, son was going to run for Secretary of State against Evan Bai, the son of the senator by his dad. And a lot of attention went into that Secretary of State race. And lo and behold, the Libertarian candidate, Katie Benson, came up with only one and a half percent. We almost tripled the results of four years earlier, but it was not enough to gain ballot access under the new requirements. Well, what that meant was everybody who wanted to run as a Libertarian in Indiana had to go out and get petitions, get signatures for at least uh, 2% of the, the vote cast in their own district, the Secretary of State race. And I decided that I wanted to get Ron Paul, who was going to be running for president in 1988, on the ballot so I could cast my vote for Ron Paul. In Indiana, there was no write-ins allowed. If you weren't on the ballot, you didn't get to vote for who you wanted to vote for. And so I thought, you know, it's going to be easier for me to collect 2,000 signatures for Ron Paul myself if I run for office and first ask my friends, would you sign this petition that would let me give you a choice for this race? And I decided to run for state representative. And after they said, sure, I think you should be able to run if you want to run, they would sign my petition. And I'd say, thank you. Would you mind signing this petition so my presidential candidate can be on the ballot and give Indiana voters a choice as well? And they'd say, sure, I think voters should have a choice. So it was a little bit, I, I, I wanted to be a paper candidate just so I could collect signatures more efficiently for Ron Paul to be on the ballot. And I was collecting a lot of signatures and I was pretty happy. And I was going on vacation uh, in the summer of 87, when we had to turn in, or actually, let's see, it'd be 88 when we had to turn in our signatures. And I turned mine in early because I was going on vacation, only to come home and see that Ron Paul didn't get on the ballot because the Republicans and the Democrats had gone into special session, created a change in the election law that moved the deadline for turning in your petition to two weeks earlier than was published. And normally when you change an election law, it doesn't take effect until the following election but they declared this an emergency. So it would take effect in 1988. And they did not tell the county clerks that they changed the deadline. So everyone out there gathering petitions to get a, a candidate on the ballot would call their county clerk and say, what's the deadline? Or they'd pick up the printed materials. They were given a date. And when they brought their petitions in, they were told, oh, you're two weeks late. The law got changed. Sorry. It, it's the kind of shenanigans that's gone on in politics a long time. So if anyone is foolish enough to think all politics is always fair and should be, um, it's just not reality. You just have to beat them by doing more hard work and beat them at their own game. Yeah, I mean, I, I joined the Libertarian Party in 2008 after I watched 300 Ron Paul delegates get kicked out of the uh, the Indiana Republican Convention when I was a, a reporter and I just thought, you know, if they're going to violate the law and they're going to violate their own rules to kick these people out so they can't have a fair voice, then this whole thing is corrupt. And lo and behold, it's fallen apart as a result. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it's it's you know, there's no doubt that there are there are efforts to keep third parties out. 
and that there are irregularities and that there is voter fraud. Now, can you switch like 11 million? No, <laughs> we've talked about that. But um, let's let's talk about, you know, what are some other things that you've done at the local level, at the state or local level in the Libertarian Party that you just think, wow, this is this was a great achievement and these were great experiences. Well, the um, the upside of the, the shenanigans in Indiana at that time was that uh, Ron Paul and myself, and and it was a class action suit, we successfully overturned Indiana's election law to allow for write-in candidates. And it took four years, it didn't help me get the chance to vote for Ron Paul in 88, but we succeeded and prevailed. And fortunately, the courts typically uh, will do the right thing. So far, <laughs> I'm, I'm optimistic as well because of the the judicial system that we have. And I'm reading a book right now, by the way, that I want to recommend to your readers and yourself if you haven't. Neil Gorsuch wrote a book last year called A Republic If You Can Keep It. And although I consider myself pretty well read about government and constitutional things, this is a great book to better understand the value of the separation of powers that right now should be in our forefront. We've just seen what happens when the executives usurp power and have executive orders they can sign in one day that changes and flip-flops what Americans can't stand to really, we need to be able to depend on what the law says is what it means. And Gorsuch does a nice job in this book of explaining the downside of having judges decide, well, that's really not what the law should have been. If they do that, then they're becoming the legislators instead of saying, well, if the legislators wanted it to have been something else, they should have written it clearly to mean something else. I recommend that book. But let me get back to the LP. Um, I got the itch again to run for office in nine, eight years later. In 1986, <clears throat> decided to run against uh, for U.S. Congress this time. I was encouraged because my turnout for the Indiana state uh, spot uh, placed fifth in the nation in uh, votes for a three-way race between the libertarian candidates. So I knew that there were local supporters doing nice things to help me out. And... Um, I, again, was probably going to just be a paper candidate. I wanted people in my district to be able to vote for a libertarian for Congress, even though I didn't expect to win. Um, Having fought for ballot access, we we were wanting to get as many people on the ballot as possible, and I was going to do my part. But back then, WGL, uh, Covis Communications, um, had the talk rate, you know, they kind of introduced talk radio to Northeast Indiana, had the Rush Limbaugh show at that time. You're well familiar with WGL. Yeah. But uh, they, uh, they were sympathetic to libertarians and they called me up and said, Hey, during election season, we always give each the Republican and the democratic candidates a half hour talk show on our radio station. Would you do that too? Oh my gosh. Here I was no longer going to be a paper candidate. So for 22 or maybe 23 weeks, I drove down to Fort Wayne, came into the studio and uh, hosted a talk radio show that was fun at the time. It gave me the chance to share the tools of the advocates and let people experience libertarianism from the point of view of a candidate they were going to be able to vote for when they got in the voting booth. And uh, when the race was over, I wasn't sure of what had been accomplished. One rarely is until years and decades go past. <laughs> yeah. But I knew I had done the best thing I could to further information and communication and education. And that kind of led me um, back into the National Libertarian Party, 
while still involved with the advocates, I was no longer the chairman or on the board at that time, but I did get involved with the Libertarian National Committee and met a lot of the leaders that brought the party forward as every decade, another group of leaders has to do. And, um, became the regional representative to the LNC for the, the five states in Region 3 at that time, and then became an at-large. And then I wanted Jim Lark to be the next chair of the Libertarian Party when I decided to uh, be his campaign chairman. And to do that, I thought if I would run for the vice chair, uh, those people who would support me because they knew me would probably support Jim as well. And it worked. He Can got you- to be chair. I got to be vice chair. And I think the Libertarian Party marched forward. Um, first, I want to say Libertarians got the ballot access back in 1994 with Steve Dillon. Uh, can you t- just touch very briefly on that that campaign? Yeah, it was um, 1980 found that we didn't get as our 2%, and Steve Dillon went above and beyond to be the candidate who was going to go around the state and trump up support to get our Secretary of State uh, vote total over 2%. So we wouldn't have to go around collecting 40,000 signatures every year that we wanted to put a candidate on the ballot. Um, and Steve Dillon, uh, had been around the libertarian party quite a while in Indiana and was known. I think he had run for secretary of state years earlier, but he was known to be a solid candidate. He's an attorney for those who don't know Steve, uh, that's passionate about our ideas and he, he got us over that threshold. We never looked back. We've always succeeded in uh, surpassing the threshold to stay on the ballot. And as a result, anyone listening who wants to be a candidate and run as a libertarian for their local precinct committee man, township office, it can be a small office. It can be a big office. If it's got a, a political party by its name, you can run as a libertarian now without having to go out and collect thousands of signatures. Yeah, Steve Dillon has been on the program when he was head of normal. Um, I believe that's behind the paywall. So if you want to listen to that interview, you've got to join Wall Plus at joinwallplus.com. Get that plug in there. Um, can you talk about Jim Lark, too? I mean, Jim is one of the finest people I've ever met in the libertarian movement and uh, just – a great guy who has done so much in so many different positions. Um, he has. We met uh, during those early advocate days, but uh, he has served on the Libertarian National Committee for many, many terms. And when I got more interested in the National Party, I came to recognize Jim as being just what you've described. Um, he's Jim's a, a professor in Virginia of uh, – engineering systems, something, something that's quite uh, detailed. Um, but he's also devoted to the, the uh, communication tools of the ad- advocates in sharing our ideas in a graceful way. I think everyone who's talked to Jim would consider him to be a graceful speaker. Yeah. And um, he's been quite tireless. He's, uh, he may still be on the National Committee, or he may have just recently stepped down, but Long after he was chair, he remained on the National Committee and helped steer the party in the direction it's been moving. So just touch on a couple more organizations before we go. We're, we're almost out of time. It's been a great conversation, but I want to talk about FEE and the Institute for Justice. I think there are a couple other important institutions that people ought to be aware of. 
Yeah, fee is the foundation for economic education, and Leonard Reed uh, started this in the 1950s. Marshall, in 1985, uh, told me when he first met me, he said, you know, you should go to a fee summer seminar. You could go for a week as an adult and spend time with Austrian economists and learn about libertarianism for a week. In, Which you uh, did not see as a threat. Like, <laughs> you were like, oh, cool, right? <laughs> no, he could see I was enthusiastic about self-education and the foundation for economic education and and. and the message that's always come along with Leonard Reed's ideas, people need to improve themselves and stand as examples in their community to further good ideas that it's not uh, sufficient or probably appropriate to be a preacher. The best thing is uh, be a humble learner, recognize that you have more to learn, reach out and gather all the information and, and the understanding you can. And rather than, force that on anyone else, live as an example from what you've learned. And that has appealed to me, and they continue to. Um, uh, in the years since I've stepped away from the National Party, I've spent a good amount of time because it recharges my batteries going to FECON and LibertyCon. These are annual meetings where mostly young people, college students, high school students, and old guys like me who want to hear from them and chat with them and watch them take their dedication and the way we had dedication to the ideas of liberty forward. And it's really an amazing thing that this organization still is going on doing great things. Students for Liberty is the other one I mentioned that has LibertyCon. Students for Liberty is an impressive organization I would encourage people to pay attention to when they come across it. And the Institutes for Justice is a group of a merry band of libertarian litigators, they sometimes call themselves. They take on cases where poor people have been held back by the government regulations and bad laws, and they take it to the Supreme Court and they win. The first case I remember that got me interested is they, they found that black women who are braiding hair in one of the southern states were prohibited from being a hair braider unless they took 1,500 hours of cosmetology training and paid the cosmetology industry in their state a royalty fee. And then even though the 1,500 hours of training taught them nothing about braiding hair, then they were allowed to practice the, the art of braiding hair. And that it was so absurd, but so common, typical. There's, there's laws like this throughout the land that need to be overturned. And, and the Institute for Justice took the case overturned the silly law. Next one I came across happened to be local. In Batesville, the Batesville Casket Company pretty much owned making caskets. And in Indiana, there was a group of uh, monks who built pine box caskets and sold them to local people to make a little money for their monastery. And of course, Batesville wanted to shut them down. You can't According to Indiana law, you can't sell a casket if you're not a funeral director. Well, the funeral directors were all for that, and Batesville was all for that. But the Institute for Justice took the case, had it shut down. And one of my good friends that lives in northeast Indiana has a corrugated box company who now makes and sells caskets and cremation boxes made out of corrugated for a much less price than you would pay Batesville for a casket. But those kinds of regulations are found in many different areas, civil asset forfeiture cases, 
have been uh, dominant lately, and the Institute for Justice is going to the Supreme Court, where the Supreme Court says, of course, that's a stupid law. It's got to go. And freedom survives. Two great organizations. Ken, it's been such a pleasure. Is there anything that you want to pass along to the listeners here. You know, we always give people an open floor right at the end, just to say, you know, I was thinking about this. I never got the chance to get it out. Like what, what do libertarians need to hear? And, and I would, uh, let me, before we end, let me ask you this question as a longtime libertarian, what do you think of the last decade and libertarianism and the libertarian party and the movement in 2021? Oh, I'm an optimist. I just don't think you can keep a good thing down. And I would share with your audience, some of you may someday think, you know, I think I might just run for office. I'm passionate about my ideas. I want to share them with others. Looking back on 1996, running for Congress, I didn't know at the end of that that there'd been any impact other than the fun I'd had. But I'll share this. Last year, our newspaper happened to do a story where they looked at straight ticket voters and it was mainly looking at straight ticket Republicans. And Andy Downs was saying that the Democrats get a raw deal in Indiana because we have this straight ticket voting. And it's not a good system, but it exists. And so the numbers are there. What they concluded was they looked at the straight ticket voters in all the counties in Northeast Indiana where my race was. And they happened to say, oh, and the libertarians have very few straight ticket voters, less than five in every county, except Steuben County. There's 95 straight ticket libertarian voters, and Allen County has 46. For those who don't know, Allen County is about uh, six times bigger than Steuben County. And so I saw that, and I smiled, and I said, you know, I didn't know that it made a difference to anybody, but somebody out there was listening to the radio, looking at what we're doing, and has decided ever since They don't need to vote for another Democrat or Republican ever again. They just pull the libertarian ticket. I didn't even do that. (laughs) Right. So uh, take heart, move on, do the right thing, be the best you can be, and the world will take care of itself if we do that. Dr. Kim Bassan, thank you so much. I really appreciate the time. It was so great to talk to you. You're welcome. I enjoyed it, Chris. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to The Chris Spangle Show, and we'll see you again tomorrow.